Claudette Colvin, civil rights pioneer, anti-racist hero, and a retired nurse. Welcome to Tell a Friend. So to begin with, Ms. Colvin, could you, um, first of all, just tell me how you've been doing during this pandemic year and how you've been, how you've been coping? Well, uh, here at Brookdale, we've been uh, quarantined and we've been locked down and uh, I've been getting along good. They've been taking good care of me. I'm, I'm glad to see that you're doing well and, uh, you know, we're finally <laughs> seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. So I invited you onto my show because you are the civil rights hero and pioneer, as I said in my introduction. And I really wanted to have you on the show because with my podcast, I highlight uh, black history and it's heroes like yourself who I love having as a guest because I think you have so much knowledge and wisdom that I can share with my audience and learn myself. So I'll begin with my first question and ask you to take me back to Montgomery in the 40s and 50s and tell me what life was like for a young Claudette Colvin. Uh, in Montgomery, Alabama, Montgomery, uh, everything was segregated in Montgomery, the school, the community, and the churches. Everything was uh, segregated, and the transportation system was segregated. And, uh, the, well, uh, in shopping downtown, uh, you wasn't allowed to try on uh, clothes in the dressing room. And... Uh, you wasn't able to try on shoes. And uh, there was white fountains and a colored fountain. Everything was completely segregated. And it, that was signs saying white only. You wasn't allowed to go in these stores. And for, for a young girl navigating this segregated uh, and racist environment, how, how did you, you know, wrap your head around all of it? How, how did you view yourself in that segregated world? Uh, well, you knew the, uh, your parents taught you the do's and don'ts so you wouldn't get in any trouble. And you knew your boundaries. And you, if you didn't want to get into trouble, you, you know, stayed, you know, stayed, you didn't cross your boundaries. So some people did, and they were penalized. And some people uh, didn't. And Ms. Colvin, I have to say, when I was doing my research for this interview, I you know, read a lot about you. And one thing that kept coming up was your love of history and how growing up, you had always been interested in history, especially Black and African history. And uh, we share that in common. I'm a his historian and uh, I study history at university. So I wanted to know what was the history that you were learning at school, you know, from an early age? Who were the characters you were learning about? Well, I learned uh, from my history teacher. Uh, we learned uh, about our heroes because there wasn't any uh, books in the library. And in the Britannical Encyclopedia, there was only two African-Americans that got recognition. And that was Booker T. Washington, the educator, and George Washington Carver, the agriculture inventor. You know, he was supposed to have 
uh, invented a lot of things, but didn't get credit for it. It's famous, he did a lot of research on the peanut. So anyway, uh, then we talked about uh, other activists like women. And the two women stood out of me the most was Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth. Uh, so, and then we talked about the black men that at that time, the boys who were mostly interested in Jackie Robinson uh, breaking a baseball barrier. And um, some of the uh, students who was interested in music and opera was uh, thinking about Marianne Anderson. And she wasn't allowed to sing in Constitutional Hall because of the color of her skin. And uh, they had, she had to sing in the uh, Lincoln Memorial. So those were the things that we talked about. And uh, we talked about Frederick Douglass, W.E. Du Bois. This, the teachers brought us this information. And my uh, two instructors, Mrs. Geraldine Nesby and Mrs. Joseph Lawrence. Mrs. Joseph Lawrence was my social studies teacher. Uh, these two teachers by the faculty members said they was unorthodox in their teaching methods. So um, Mrs. Uh, Joseph Lawrence had us to subscribe. At that time, it was a little mini uh, newspaper called The Current Events. We were learning about the struggle in Kenya. And so it, that's why uh, I was so interested in history. That's so wonderful to hear because uh, actually something that, you know, comes up time and time again today is the issue about what's on the curriculum and what um, black history is being taught to students. Um, and there's a, a lot of debate about whether there's enough black history, but it's great to know that you were learning about the Mau Mau because I'm actually Kenyan myself. Yes. So it's wonderful that they were teaching that history. But I wanted to ask you in when you went home, did you continue these uh, discussions around race and around, you know, politics with your family? Yes, because the, uh, there was a lot of injustice that uh, was taking place in the black community. We were treated as a second class citizens. And when I was in the ninth grade, something happened. And I, I don't want to jump ahead of you, that was one of the reasons why I got interested. One of my classmates, when I was in the ninth grade, Jeremiah Reese was arrested for being a serial rapist. And he was on death row. And he was a minor. And they uh, held him on death row until he was old enough to be electrocuted. And, you know, how, how did all of that make you feel? I mean, um, you know, I say this cautiously, not wanting to ask an obvious question, but, you know, I, I struggled to put myself in, in your shoes back then, you know, where you're taking in your environment, where, you know, you're in a re uh, segregated society, you know, how, how did that impact you emotionally and spiritually? Well, I'm sorry, it was a very uh, unfair, and because I saw the double standard, because when a white man was uh, arrested for the same uh, crime, he got off scot-free. 
And this young man, this was an adult white man, rape a white uh, black girl. And uh, the they judge didn't think that black girl was attractive enough for a white man to rape her, to rape the black girl. But this young guy, this young man was held, he was a minor and he was treated as an adult. So that was unfair. And uh, we sent letters to Jeremiah. And uh, so, you know, to try to give him support. And we don't know whether he would receive the letters or not, but we did. So that was when I was in the ninth grade. So you saw so much injustice as a child. So you wonder why the adult was why the adult was afraid to speak out. Now, before we get into speaking about your, you know, your historic day of resistance, I want to uh, first of all just paint a picture for you know our audience and you know ask you what was the music you were listening to, uh, you know, at this early age, and you know what was the food you were eating. Just paint a picture of um, you know the culture at the time. Uh, the music, <laughs> the music that I was listening to, well, there was a samples in, um, we, we, I listened to a lot of samples, samples music, and well, um, at that, at that time, and it was rock and roll, it was rock and roll, and you know, Elvis Presley was, we uh, had a lot of Elvis Presley. And because we didn't have the radio station, I listened to a lot of Hank Williams. He was a white country singer. Yes. We didn't have a radio station. So a lot of music was country music, <laughs> white, you know, white music, country music. I love Hank Williams, though. I like his music. And, and, you know, how, how did you, uh, you know, did you go out to clubs and dances um, with your um, friends? We would have uh, record hops, but I wasn't a good dancer. We would have record hops, and you were the best dancer. I was a wallflower. I was a wallflower. I waited till the end, and then I, everybody joining at the end. And at that, uh, at that time, the cha-cha, was coming out, the cha-cha has, you know, the cha-cha. You heard talk of the cha-cha? The uh, Latin dance, the cha-cha. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. yeah, but we didn't do it the Latin way. We did the rock and roll way. And that I didn't get, because I was going one, two, cha-cha-cha, one, two, cha-cha. I didn't get it. I could never get it the rock and roll way, the cha-cha. No, that was good. And then later, as I... You know, the twist came in. Chubby Checker, the twist, the yeah. twist. And I took all the great twists. <laughs> yes, Chubby Checker. And, and everybody knows the blues, but you don't, you don't, blues is a slow brew, but the teenagers like the, the twist. And I have to ask you, in your, you know, day-to-day -day life, you know, whether it was going out with your friends or in school, did you have much interaction with, you know, white people, white students? You know, was that, with that interaction? Oh, 
no, but because I live long, I tell people, because they live long, okay, this is a long story. I'm going to try to put it together the best I can, be as simple as I can. I lived in between two white communities, Capitol Heights in the front and Highland Garden in the back. Capitol Heights was a white working class community and uh, Highland Garden was a low income white community. And we lived on this little elevated land that no one wanted that was a seed company on on this land. And um, he uh, since a lot of African-Americans, well, we were called Negroes and colored at that time, was coming from the rural area. They didn't mind. They just wanted a little plot of land, right, to build a home. So a lot of uh, homeowners was on King Hill. It's only two, only three blocks, three long blocks. And uh, I had, in, and that was the upper Wetonka Highway that separated the white community from King Hill. So on one side, that was you, a white uh, African, well, colored people or Negroes couldn't buy property across the highway. Had to ride you know, on the one side. That was the Mason-Dixon line, the highway, the Upper Wetonka Highway. So that's I had to. I didn't. I just recognized their faces and the color of their hair, but I did not know their name. And they, you know, we made faces at them. And they threw spitballs at us and they threw water balloons. But our parents told us not to fight them, run from them, because if we fought them, they will put us in the reformatory school. And we know that was a school for hard labor. So we were frightened. We didn't want to go to school where where you had to do hard labor. So we didn't fight with the white kids, but every day I had to pass them in order to get off the hill, in order to come off, in order to get off the street where I live and cross the highway to get where I'm going, I had to pass white people. Now in order so we did it to act. We did it to act. I was going to mention that um, in in the interviews that I've seen of yours and, you know, doing my reading, I read that, you know, at school you were even, you know, quite a radical back then and you used to wear your braids. Could you tell me, could you tell me that story? <laughs> well, that story with us anyway. Well, right now I'm wigging it. But back in the day, uh, I'll describe the texture of my hair. I have that little soft nappy hair. And little soft nappy hair is hard to keep straight. You need the coarse hair to take the, because then we didn't have the perm and all the chemicals that African-Americans have now. We didn't have none of that now, back then in the day. We only had what we call a hot comb and pomade. So my hair wouldn't stay straight no way. So anyway, I would say it didn't stay straight anyway. So I decided to go not to worry about it. And I went to school natural and the children thought I was really crazy. 
They said, what? And they was, girls were telling me, you're going to lose your boyfriend. You're going to lose your boyfriend. So they go, the boys are going to be calling you nappy-headed. So I didn't care. I didn't care. That didn't phase me then. And, and when you were wearing your braids, were you wearing it, you know, trying to make a political statement? Were you wearing it to... No, I was just... Celebrate no, at that time... When I was wearing it that way, I just got tired of straightening it. Straightening it. <laughs> then later, I just kept on wearing it. And I, they were saying, when you gonna, when you going to stop wearing it? I said, I'm going to stop wearing it with everything. <laughs> when black people straighten out, they mess. But I didn't mean that straighten out their mess. But I meant that when black people you know, find out and then stop worrying about, you know, trying to emulate the white woman because you have wasn't going to get straight and swipe. Uh, seeing, okay, since I was on King Hill and being around and seeing these white people every day, I knew they our hair wasn't going to look like theirs anyway, no matter how you straighten it. It wasn't going to look like theirs, not with no hot comb. So anyway, <laughs> That's what I was talking about. Even even that small act. I mean, uh, you were saying that, that at school you'd get ridiculed from students, but the fact that you you know you stood your ground, you were showing you know that early resistance, and you were showing that you know you were you were determined to you know live live your life, do you know make your own decisions regardless of what other people said or felt. And I use that to segue into. You know, the historic day, March 2nd, 1955. And I was wondering if you could talk to me, you know, through that day and, you know, what happened before the bus? Because I, I think, it, you know, it'd be nice to understand how your day led up to that event. Well, it's, it's, it's what we were speaking about it, what we just said. We were studying about the whole month of February was uh it wasn't legally then it was just a week but the faculty member said since we were since uh well since Negroes were deliberately left out of American history uh we should study it for the whole month. So I had the whole month to talk about all the injustice that was happening nationally and local. So Anyway, that's why, and I tell the uh, reporter, it's, it's someone just says, so, you know, you're not the first reporter, but the reporter asked me, why did you move when the bus driver asked you to give up your seat? I said, history had me glued to the seat. And then the reporter said, how is that? I said, it felt as though Harriet Tubman's hand was pushing me down on one shoulder and Sojourner Truth's hand was pushing me down on another. And I said, these two are kind of women. I had studied about their lives and their struggle and how brave they were. So it was no way I was going to let these Harlem gardeners, at that time the bus audience, get away with forcing me to give my seat up. So you're sat on the bus, um, a white woman has come on, 
and now you're being asked to move. And you said you, you felt history, you know, pushing you down and, you know, telling you to remain seated and stand your ground. Could you tell me what was going on in your mind is, you know, all of this was unfolding. Were you, were you calm? Were you, you know, with your heart racing, what was going on? No, I was a teenager. I to <laughs> tell you the Highland Gardeners were people that I was familiar with their faces and they have color, but we didn't interact. You understand? So they wasn't strangers. They wasn't strangers. And the, the students in the back of me during the altercation, uh, one, one lady, I never will forget her, her name was Margaret Johnson. She said, uh, one of the uh, one of the white passionate little girl, one of the white students said, Well, you gotta get up because it's the law. You got to get up because it's the law. And Margaret Johnson said, she doesn't have to do anything but stay black and die. <laughs> and so that made me feel <laughs> that gave me a little more support. And the students, you know, they gave me support because we all knew what my, my they, the students knew, I mean, say the passionists, my, uh, that was, I mean, say the, my classmates that lived in my community, we, they knew my mindset and they gave me support. So I didn't move and they didn't get off the bus. They didn't no, move didn't. either. I can only imagine. They didn't get out of that seat and run off the bus. What I'm speaking about. They stayed there. They remained seated. Yes. And I, I wonder, you know, um, what the reaction would have been from your parents. You know, as a parent, you know, you hear that your child is, <laughs> you know, starting this movement, starting this, you know, this defiance. What was the reaction when you got home and your parents learned about, you know, your defiance on the bus? Oh, my dad, my dad said, you know, we don't have a strong R in the, in the South. So my dad said, you know, I mean, you know, well, he called me by my nickname. And so you put us, put me, you put us in a lot of danger. And I said that uh, these people were picking at me. They was picking at me, you know, they were harassing me. That's what I told daddy. I didn't say her rat. I said they were picking on me. These white children was picking on me and the bus driver. And then they called the police. So my dad sit up all night shot with a shotgun. You know, a loaded shotgun, not an empty shotgun. Because my dad was a hunter. Well, you couldn't, uh, African or well, Negroes at that time, all color people. Couldn't get uh, ammunition until hunting season, but dad always kept enough sh shell, we call them shells, to put in the shotgun. So he loaded his shotgun and sit there waiting because he said, if they come, I knew my dad was a good shot. I know they, I know the clan was going to take me out because dad would have took some of them out. And I wonder, you know, at, at that time, did you, realize the significance of your act did you you know realize you know how important that was or to you were you still just standing you know by your conviction no 
know, at the time I told you, it was just the Highland Gardeners, the, the low-income white people that on an altercation between the uh, adult white people jumped in it and the bus driver, which it wasn't, wasn't supposed to be because I wasn't breaking the law. I was sitting in the seat that was assigned for colored people. But because of Jim Crow, a white driver, the bus driver could ask you to get the release your seat. And in order for the white lady to sit, it had to be four people to move because the law was that a white person could sit behind a, a Negro or color person. They had to sit in front of a white person to, I would say, of a color person, a Negro person, to show superiority and then want the Negro to feel inferior. Because you see, here in Birmingham, at that, we didn't, in Montgomery, we didn't even have the uh, movable signs like they had here in Birmingham. In Birmingham, maybe because it was a bigger city, maybe that's probably why in a larger Black community, uh, they had white on, on one side other sign and color on the other and it was movable and as the in different uh, areas depending on the population of the rider the bus driver could move it so you wouldn't have no confusion but we didn't have that in Montgomery it was up at the top where the advertisement out at the top of the bus with an arrow pointing to the rear and an arrow pointing towards the front so the bus driver had the power to move these signs so I was, my anger was at the uh, Highland Gardeners, but I did not know at the time everything was an impulsive act, and I did not know that it would evolve into a movement. You know, that that's something that has come up time and time again as I've been speaking to, you know, activists from different decades, uh, you know, fighting different causes. Uh, you have these huge his, uh, historical uh, events that take place and people don't realize the gravity of what's happening at the time. And, uh, you know, as a history student, you know, taking all of this information in is, is fascinating for me. But I wanted to move on to talking about the court case that followed. And I was wondering if you could talk to my viewers a bit about the court case and your involvement in it. The court case was called Rider B. Gale because uh, it was uh, four women. Initially, it was five women, Miss Janetta Reese, but uh, she declined because uh, and she almost got attorney Fred Gray disbarred because she didn't not let him know, uh, didn't, uh, notify her husband that she was going to participate. And so there was a little friction going on there. But Anyway, she declined, so we ended up with four women, uh, two, two adults and two teenagers. Mrs. Susan McDonald, Ms. Aurelia Browder, who the case was named after, and Mary Louise Smith, and her name is Mary Louise Smith Ware now, and myself. And initially, they wanted to use Mrs. Parks as a sports person, but uh, for the information that I received is that attorney Fred Gray came to New York to 
get advice from Robert Carter and Thurgood Marshall that um, that they need to get new plaintiffs that they could uh, hold Mrs. Park gonna arrested for misdemeanor and they could hold out another year and they didn't know whether the protesters would be willing to stay off the bus another year because people don't realize with the transportation system, that system was all over the South and that they had had a bus boycott in Tallahassee, Florida that was unsuccessful and one in Baton Rouge, Louisiana was successful. So Dr. King had led this one successfully and we to lose. So they had to, Attorney Fred Ray first asked volunteers from ministers, but the minister declined because that church was being bombed by the KKK. And a lot of that livelihood depended on that church. So anyway, they came back to myself and met the two teachers and the four, and well, the four women. And so that's why the case was that's what case went to the state and then eventually it went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court declared that uh, segregated seating on the bus, segregated seating and transportation was unconstitutional. I was asking about how the media was reporting on your case and um, you know how they were reporting about you know your defiant moment on the bus. About the defiant moment on the bus, uh, I wasn't highlighting it too much. Uh, uh, most of the ministers, uh, most of the people said uh, was it, uh, that I was an unsung hero, that I was an unsung hero. But to me, uh, most people don't know about Florida Carver, not even in the uh, Montgomery area. Most people know about Rosa Parks. They know, they know about her, but they don't know about me. So that's what it is. And the four women, they don't know that um, most people think that Mrs. Park, because she refused to uh, give a fussy, that that ended segregation. They don't realize a lot of litigation took place because the segregationists uh, had taken it to court and they, it wasn't that easy. And a lot of brilliant attorneys uh, had to fight it through the judicial system. And it wasn't just uh, giving up the seat, not re you know, being arrested. And she wasn't on the case. She wasn't on the case. But that don't diminish anything about Rosa and her contribution to the movement. But I think the truth should be out there that the case was the four women. We were the one that brought it to a successful conclusion. And, you know, a lot of people, when they're looking at your, your case, looking at the case of Rosa Parks, which took place nine months later, a lot, a lot of people um, talk about colorism and how you being of a darker complexion and not fitting, you know, the image that uh, they were trying to you know achieve for the movement in your in your own assessment do you believe that's the case your story wasn't um you know promoted by the movement 
because, you know, well, uh, color is in the African-American uh, community because white, uh, I don't know whether it was the anthropologists or who made people believe that white, uh, the white race period and people uh, who had white features and, uh, you know, you had to, that look, that image was considered more appealing to the white community than a dark complexion person. I wanted to move on to talking about some recent events. Uh, obviously, we've just uh, ushered out the Trump era in America. And during Trump's uh, well reign, if you like, we saw the issue of race really come to the forefront again. And we saw a lot of, uh, you know, racism, overt racism uh, that America hasn't seen in a very long time. And I was wondering, you know, what was your assessment of the Trump years and, you know, the hostility um, that was brewed by his base? Well, uh, I think it was always there, but uh, in the South, the more liberal white people now, and that uh, minority didn't get a fair, you know, wasn't was treated unfairly. But during the um, white, uh, white, uh, I'm say during the Trump era, uh, he didn't emphasize it too much, you know, about uh, racism. He said he was the least racist person. But um, I think racism is mostly based now in the modern day racism based on it the economy. As long as we are minority and we got to depend uh, on uh, other people for our resources and our well-being, we're always going to sit, you know, not as equal to them. Yeah, although there's just as many uh, low-income white people, but they they identify with the ruling class just because of their skin. But uh, I think Trump used them. I think he really used them, you know, to uh, rant their fears. And the fear is that in the world today, the uh, Caucasian people, I think that's the world, I think that's global. I don't think uh, Caucasian people with uh, more people of color become wiser and educated you know, and knowing their system that they're going to get a free pass like they have before. They can't go in. I don't think they can go into any country now and take over without uh, giving something back. But before, they used to just go over and take over and no consequences or no consequences whatsoever. And I think the fear is the threat of the... Uh, the uh, rising up in the expectation of minorities. And minorities are uh, getting educate, educated. And, they, and uh, I know most African-Americans feel that education is the, uh, a tool that you can use to uplift yourself. And I think that is their biggest fear because as they have been told that we couldn't, you know, that we wouldn't want a better life. 
but there's been rising expectations of, of people of color. And it's not only African-American, all people of color. And another, another country that's uh, in the global, I, you know, just from watching TV, China has come on the scene, boy, and Chinese people don't play around. So I think that's a big problem. The Caucasian people going, in other words, what I'm going to say, they're going to have to compete. And before they didn't have to compete, everything was handed. They got everything easy. I think the word they use, what is it? Privileged white people? Is that the word they use? Yeah. I, was, I think that I think that's the end of it, and that's a big. Well, I I think uh, you you bring up uh, you know an amazing point there, um, where you talk about you know race and class, and I think that's so important as you're saying, you know to you know look at racism with that class dimension, and look at how you know a lot of Trump's base um, are actually you know victim to a lot of the economic pressures that. A lot of people, you know, a lot of uh, black and, you know, other people of color, uh, you know, victim to. But the difference is they vote based on their, you know, their color allegiances. They vote on what's best, you know, for, for their white privilege. I wanted to ask you, what was your assessment of the Black Lives Matter movement that was taking place at Resurge uh, over the summer? Well, I was glad that uh, the Black Lives Matter, obviously the Black <laughs> Black Lives Movement, uh, was born, uh, came out and spoke out and uh, was a, you know, was able to express themselves, you know, get their voice known. Uh, so because there was too much injustice going on, it opened me, and especially after George Floyd. Uh, death. I don't know, it was too much. It was too much openly. That was uh, 21st century, openly. I don't know, I don't understand that. Really can wrap my mind around it. And you know, it's so depressing too to know that, you know, the law enforcement people are supposed to protect you and they go out the way to harm you. So I just couldn't wrap my mind around it. I don't even try to. I'm glad that the young people are, you know, fighting for police reform. There need to be some. You're supposed to be treated equally, you know. And, you know, how, how do you feel when you, when you look at the racial injustices that are taking place today and you, you know, think back to 1955 where, you know, a 15-year-old Claudette Colvin was fighting the same issues back then, you know, does it make you feel, you know, a little bit depressed that, you know, things aren't improving as quick as we would want them to? Uh, I think, yes, I think that uh, a lot has changed, but a lot still remains the same. But because no one had really, and this country had really acknowledge that slavery was wrong. They didn't acknowledge that. I don't think there's anything they want, you know, they, you know, they tried to, but nothing has been said, you know, to address the uh, whole Negro, pop, uh, Negro race, that slavery was wrong. And it, you know, 
So I think until we address that and that the anthropologist was wrong, too, that we are not the missing link to the chimpanzee, right? A lot of them try to pretend that we were closer to the, the anthropologists tried to justify that we were the closest to the chimpanzee and a lot of, uh, lot of people, a lot of scientists believe that that we could learn and that we was inferior as a race of people. As a race of people, we are inferior. So all of this has to be addressed until we come to mind is that we are all on this planet and there's no such thing as an inferior human being. You, From day one, you have to learn. I don't care if you're the king, I don't care if you the uh, peasant, you still have to learn. So if you don't live in a healthy environment and you don't have the resources and provided by an adult person, you're going to remain the same. So in the same system, I mean, in the same status. I mean. But we as, and as human beings, until the white or the Caucasian people acknowledge that, it was always there, but some of the liberal, liberal people, they just said a little bit. They wanted, in other words, they wanted to get the best of us, and uh, but they wanted to leave. The, well, I'm, I'm like this old movie, or this old Clint Eastwood movie, but the African-Americans are the bad, the good, and the ugly. But the white, the liberals just only want the good people, and the good of what happened to us I want to inject this. All the good African-American, all intelligent African-American, and all the successful African-American professionals, they left, us, they left them, uh, the ghetto, and they aligned themselves with the Caucasian people and the white community and left us behind. And I think that was our big mistake. What, they should, what, we, what we got to do now with, with what we've seen happening now, and we wasn't ex it didn't get exposed until that was the only thing I can say uh, Trump exposed us to that the lack of the cohesiveness in the black community. So the black lives matter. That's why I'm so proud of them. So they can put you know bring the unite the black family together. And if we all get together on the same page, we can defeat this racism. I, I think that's, you know, a great point that you make there, you know, about the importance of, you know, actually taking the present day struggles and actually contextualizing it in the longer history, not only looking at now, but looking, you know, slavery, looking at the way anthropology was set up and how, you know, academia in general was set up uh, to facilitate racism. Um, but before we conclude, I wanna finish on a quick fire round of questions. So I'm gonna okay. read out, I'm gonna read out a statement and ask you to fill in the, the blank. So the first fill one, in the blank. yeah, to complete the sentence. Okay. So the first one is the greatest misconception about me is. That I was crazy when I reacted. My biggest regret is? That I didn't get the recognition at an early age. 
I am most fearful of. Most fearful of. I'm from most fearful of racism. I am most proud of. My grandchildren, uh, they are most proud of my grandchildren. They are uh, reap the fruit of my labor. And finally, I want to be remembered for. For my contribution, and I was the spark that ignited the Montgomery bus boycott. Miss Claudette Colvin, thank you so much for joining me on Tell a Friend. And I want to tell you, this has been the fulfillment of a dream to be able to speak with you. So I thank you so much. Thank you. You're quite welcome. Thank you.